Good morning, church. My name is Tyler. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview, and, and welcome. We're in week two in our series on Amos, and Dale kicked us off last week looking at an overview of this book and, and what was all really going on in Israel's history during the time that Amos prophesied. And we, we get much from that in Amos 1.1, the opening verse of this book, where it says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel. You see, we learned last week that, that Amos was not actually a prophet by profession. He was a shepherd. He was a, a fig tree farmer. Really, he was just an ordinary guy who spent his time following the Lord and, and doing his nine-to-five job. But God called him. And God used this ordinary man to do extraordinary things to bring this message to the northern kingdom of Israel. And this journey from the southern region of Judah up to Israel, it took place within the 8th century BC. Jeroboam II uh, was king at the time. And, and as we learned last week, Israel was in this economic boom. There was prosperity. There was peace in the land. There was large-scale urbanization projects going on, all because of just how good life was. Life really was good. Well, except if you were poor. And so now Amos makes his way into Israel, and he's delivered this message, which really his opening message kind of seemed to indict all of these neighboring regions around Israel. He, he kind of curried favor with all these other areas as he spoke against them. But now, now it kind of is about to get real, and things are about to change. So church, pray with me, and then let's read God's word together. Jesus, we thank you for this morning, for the privilege that it is to be able to gather, to be the church no matter where we are. And I pray that you would speak to us where we are. You're a God that meets us where we are at. And so meet us where we are at this morning, Lord. At home, in our living room in our offices, wherever it is, Lord, where we are gathering with you, speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Dale last week shared these words briefly. We're going to look at this morning church, Amos chapter 2, uh, verses 6 to 8. But then we're going to skip ahead a little bit as well. And I want to look at Amos 4.1 for just a brief moment. So these are the prophetic words of Amos towards Israel. And they're not pretty, but let's read them this morning. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink fine wines taken as fines. And skipping ahead to Amos 4.1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Like I said, it's not pretty. You see, at this point, Amos is going off on the nation of Israel. He's given it 110%. He's pulling out all the punches. He's, 
he's using whatever cliched sports analogy you want to throw at it right now. And, and I think it begs us to ask a question this morning, church. Why are Amos's words to Israel so heated? And I think the answer to that is this, because we need to remember. We need to remember that Israel, it was a covenant people. You see, they were the chosen ones of God. They were commanded by the Lord on how to live, how to work, how to worship. And so all these crimes that Amos identifies in this tirade against them, you see, they're all crimes that would have identified earlier on in the Sinai Covenant. Oppression of the poor, denial of inheritance rights, failure to observe sabbatical laws, jubilee laws, etc. You see, these were all things that God had commanded Moses back in Exodus chapters 19 to 24. And Israel was failing to live up to them. So church, there's three observations I want to make as we look at our passage this morning. And the first one, our first point this morning, is the fear of the Lord. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, says this in one of his books titled Awe. He writes, our hearts are always captured by something. You see, that's how God made us. But sin threatens to distract us from the glory of our creator. All too often, we stand in awe of everything but God. And when it comes to this concept of the fear of God, we've said this numerous times around here at Westview, that that fear of the Lord is as much fear and Lord as butterfly is as much butter and fly. And that's why I tend to lean towards this word awe. You see, when you look for awe, it will shape the direction of your life. Misplaced awe keeps us perennially dissatisfied. And awe stimulates the greatest joys and the deepest sorrows in us all. And here in our text this morning, Israel, God's covenant people, have no doubt lost their awe of the Lord. It's what we read again in Amos 1.6. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. You see, what Amos declares at the onset of this message is that Israel is neck deep in sin. But for Israel, as we mentioned at the beginning of this message, you see, they were in the midst of this economic boom. For the rich, life was good. It was really good. And I don't know about you, but I find that it's, it's in those good times we don't often always feel that there's this deep need for God. That really it's only in the hard times when, when life gets challenging that it's then that we begin to really feel this need for Him. And I think that's one of the greatest struggles we have in our evangelistic process as Christians is is that for many modern-day people, there's, there's just no desire for God when life is good and stuff is plentiful. We've talked about stuff a lot, it seems like, these last few weeks as a church. And the truth of the matter is, the stuff of our lives so often can become an idol. You see, I think our stuff often provides security for us. It, it acts as a comforter. It, it provides us almost with a sense of identity. After all, I mean, if you watch any advertisement in our modern culture, 
Whereas decades ago, if a manufacturer was trying to sell you a product, what they would do is they would tell you all of the things that that, that product could do. They would kind of tout the effectiveness of it, the, the value of it, the purpose of it. But if you look at the marketing agenda of our culture today, really it's just simple. They say if you don't have X, then life isn't meaningful. If you don't have X, then, then life has no purpose. And so then purchase this in order to have a better life. You see, for the nation of Israel, in the time of Amos as he's prophesying, their culture and context was, was full of stuff. It was full of luxury and, and extravagance. But it was built. It was built off the backs of those who were poor and oppressed. And for the Lord, this was just simply unacceptable. Take a look what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah about this similar matter. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. You see, building a life of luxury off the backs of the poor and oppressed was not how the Lord desired his covenant people to live. And what he desired of Israel is what I believe he still desires of you and I today. And you see, that's our second point this morning, and it's this obedience to God's word. One commentary writer put it this way. They said, when we reject God's word as it was in Amos' time, we should anticipate the teeth of God's discipline. Not, however, as punishment of his enemies, but as loving chastising of his children. If you were to ask me why the culture of Amos' time was so lost spiritually, well, I'd say it's because they lost their focus and they strayed from God's word. You see, and this breaks the heart of God. But maybe you're still hung up on that part where it says we should anticipate the teeth of God's discipline and you're, you're wrestling with this and saying to yourself, how does that align with what I'm told about God being a God of love? You see, this kind of makes God sound like he's got this kind of raving temper that he's kind of eager to punish. And so how do we reconcile these two things? Firstly, I think we need to recognize that, that God isn't some sort of cosmic killjoy or, or, or deranged disciplinarian. He's a loving father. Okay, you say, but then how do we handle this intensity of the prophecy of Amos and those strong words of the Lord towards his people? Well, I think we need to look at two things this morning. The first one is we need to recognize what sin is. And what it does. You see, sin separates us from God and it, and it drives a wedge between us and God and it, it distorts the life of godliness and holiness that He has called us to. Sin drives us to act out in ways of disobedience to the living Word and how the Word instructs us to live. And then the second thing I think we need to do is we need to understand God's response to sin. You see, God's desire is for all of his children to escape the bondage of sin, of sinful living. 
It's why the entire Old Testament sacrificial system really was built almost like a giant arrow. Like a giant arrow pointing to the day where there would be one sacrifice once and for all. That God would send his son Jesus to the earth to live the perfect life, this life that we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died, to make atonement for sin, to bring us into right standing with God again, to reconcile us, to reconcile sinners to their loving heavenly Father. And so what Amos' indictment against Israel shows us is all the ways that we have gone against the word, all the ways in which the Lord has commanded us to live and Israel to live. We pick it up in Amos chapter 2, verse 6b to 7a. It says, They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. You see, what the prophecy here is describing violates what the Lord commanded his covenant people to do when he spoke to Moses. We pick it up in Exodus 23.7. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. And then the prophet Isaiah picks it up a little bit later and he says this. He says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You see, what's important for us to remember in this story is that we need to remember that all of humanity bears the image of God. And because of this, this opportunistic and hateful behavior of Israel, it's an affront to God. Because truthfully, they knew better. They knew better. Before we get all kind of holier than thou, we need to recognize that, that for us as followers of God, we shouldn't immediately jump into taking delight in the wrong getting what they deserve. And why? Well, I think it's because in as much as wrongdoing requires justice, you see, our proper response needs to be more in line of what it says in Amos 1-2, of bowing down, of mourning, of pleading, Lord, have mercy. Because we recognize that in our own sinfulness, we need the Lord's mercy on us. We need his grace and his mercy too. I want us to look at another chapter in Israel's history and, and see how this played out. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, following the dedication of the temple by Solomon, we read the story of Solomon and the Lord. In verse 4, we see what it looks like when people fear and follow the Lord. And then in verses 17 to 22, we see what happens when people fail to follow the Lord. So let's pick it up in verse four. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so we see here in the text, this promise of God this promise for those who will remain faithful, who walk in obedience to the Lord and his word. And we'll look at this theme of humility a little bit later in our text this morning, but, but I want us to look at the other side of the story now, the other side of the coin for that matter. And so we pick it up in verse 17. As for you, 
If you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all my command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. This temple will become like a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forgotten the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. So you see from this passage, these, these two examples in Second Chronicles where, where God promises what he promises for those who fear the Lord and who are faithful to the word and what God decrees for those who choose not to. Church, there's so much that we can learn from Israel's history. And then lastly this morning, I want to focus our thoughts towards this final portion of Amos chapter 2 and then look at that part in Amos 4.1. Our third point this morning is this, church, God's standard of sexual purity and social justice. So picking up again in Amos 2. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And then in Amos 4.1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. I mean, you read these verses, and I don't know about you, but I feel like I almost need to wash my mind out with soap. Or I guess really it's 2020, so we probably just need to use some hand sanitizer and Lysol wipes. And I know that there are times, I think, when we say, you know, I wish life would just be like those good old days. Now, I don't even know what the good old days were or when exactly they happened. But, but when you read these verses, I think for a moment you realize that life in 2020 isn't that much different than what it was in the time of Amos and this prophecy. The promiscuous and an utter inconceivable acts of a father and son quite vividly paint this picture of the sexual ethic of Amos's day and how truly far they had descended into the depth of their sin. And it got me thinking, church. You see, when we live to advance our own pleasure by negligence or intent, and when we oppress others that we should expect the hand of God against us. I mean, it's like what I tell my kids. Our choices have consequences. You're free to make those choices, but you're not free from the consequences of them. And I think Israel needed a wake-up call from the consequences of the sin that they were doing. And so our text this morning, I think it begs us to ask a question what is the object of our focus? What is the object of our focus? And I think, church, it comes in two ways. 
And the first one is this. It's the focus of self. Because look at that final portion of Scripture this morning. Look at Amos 4.1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Just to explain to you a little bit of the context of where this verse is coming from, the, the region of Bashan was known for its well-fed cattle. You can read this in Psalm 22.12 or Ezekiel 39.18. And it's to that that Amos kind of sarcastically likens these women of Samaria. His accusation against them is that they oppress the poor, just as he had previously accused the male leaders in this society. That neither gender here is excused from this reprehensible behavior. No, I don't know if you've ever seen the show before, but when I was thinking about this and reading this portion of Scripture, what was coming to my mind from what Amos was describing in chapter 4-1, that basically what we have going on here is like the Old Testament version of the Real Housewives of Orange County. I'm not saying I've ever seen the show, and if you've ever seen the show, then you just need to repent of that now. I'm kidding, but just... It's just a show about luxury, about excess, about just all of the focus being on self. And these women in our story in Amos 4.1 may not have been directly involved in mistreating the poor, but their incessant demands for luxuries drove their husbands to even greater injustices. And so then they just simply lived for themselves. And you hear it here, bring us some drinks. Just snap your finger. Bring us some drinks. We just want to live for ourselves. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.19. Their, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see, we can't for one moment, church, Forget that what's at the heart of the matter here is that it was the religious people who were exploiting the poor. Those who were doing injustice were the religious people. And this is what stirred God's anger. This is what stirred his wrath and his judgment in our text. This is the reason he raised up Amos to go and speak to the nation of Israel. Because this is not okay. This is not how God's people are supposed to act. So then how are God's people supposed to act? How are God's people supposed to act? And I think that question is answered in the next scripture I want us to look at. And it's Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that brings us to our second focus this morning. Who are we to act on towards? And that is others. I love this quote from World Vision. Let me read it for us. As Christians, the building blocks of social justice lie in human dignity, human flourishing, and the sacredness of life. The source of social justice is God's perfect righteousness justice, and radical love. Social justice is about creating kingdom space in the here and now, giving witness to the ultimate just society yet to come. 
So every time we use our voice and influence to get in the way of injustice, whether it's human trafficking, economic exploitation, human rights abuses, or infants dying needlessly from disease and malnutrition, we provide a foretaste of God's kingdom to come. And while the indictments against Israel in this text are certainly shocking and outright offensive, they are acting as a reminder for God's people, then and now, about what it is that God truly cares about. What he cares about, church, are others, people, his creation. God cares for his creation, for human dignity and, and human flourishing. Why? Because we have been created in the Imago Day, in the image of God. You and I, as followers of Christ, we are, we are image bearers. Humanity has been created in the image of God. And it's beautiful. And so it's why on a day like today, when we've been reminded already of this urgent call to pray for those who are being denied justice, to pray for those who are being persecuted because of no other reason other than their profession of faith in Jesus, to pray for those who are being mistreated and abused and are having their rights violated, that we acknowledge that each and every single human being is created in the image of God. Each has purpose, dignity, rights, and, and is deeply loved by God. And yet we see that history often repeats itself. And sadly, we are not always, as God's people, on the right side of history. So what do we do? What does God ask of us? Well, I think it comes back to what we read a bit earlier this morning, to what God's word says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord requires of us. This is what God is asking for us today as his followers. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This is what Amos went to profess and to communicate to the nation of Israel. To turn from their sin and to follow the Lord to do right, to not build their empire off the backs of the poor and the oppressed, but to love one another as God has commanded us and had commanded them. And so this morning, church, as we remember and reflect on the persecuted church, on those who face incredible hardship, torture, and death in the name of Jesus, we remember them and we pray for them, and we seek for justice, for reconciliation, and for the love of God to be known and felt.
Pray with me. Jesus, it is on this morning that we come and pray to acknowledge that still in this world there is great injustice, but that you love justice. You love seeing wrong made right. You love seeing hope and mercy and grace experienced as you provide that so beautifully to us. And so this morning again, Lord, we lift up those who are persecuted in your name, Jesus. We remember them. We fight for justice for them. That people would come to know you as Lord and Savior, as a God who loves, as a King who reigns, and that all of this is a foretaste of what is still to come, of an eternity in your presence, God. Help us to learn from Israel's past, Israel's mistakes, and to work to never repeat those again in our day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.